It's good to sing such wonderful truths about what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And when we are accused of guilt, when we are accused of being guilty for sins already dealt with, we are reminded of what Jesus has done, and in Him we find peace and hope and confidence. The Lord is good. He is always faithful to meet us in our weakness and to meet us in our need. And we certainly need Him now as we're going to look to His Word. So let's go to Him now in prayer and ask Him to be with us and help us as we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, it is a great comfort to us to know that our sufficiency is not in ourselves. It's a comfort to us to know that You are the utterly faithful God who always is good, who is always merciful, who is always gracious. We pray that You would come and minister to us now by Your Spirit as we look to Your Word. We pray quite simply that You would show us ourselves from within Your Word. Show us Yourself and show us our Savior. We pray that as we behold Christ, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray that we would be stirred up to love one another and to pursue good works. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Well, friends, we talk sometimes about the fact that local churches like this one and other local churches all over the world today that preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ Local churches are outposts of the kingdom of heaven. And not only are local churches outposts of the kingdom of heaven in some general sense, local churches are forgiveness outposts. I'm not sure if you've thought about it that way. You can look around at the world and see that the world is chasing after a number of things. But one of the things that the world is clearly doing is seeking to justify itself. The world is seeking after forgiveness, and it is nowhere to be found. But here, in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness is offered extravagantly and freely because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners. He has accomplished our salvation, and God the Father delights to save. If we are going to dwell with God, the Scriptures are clear that we must be without sin. And that's a problem because since Adam and Eve, every one of us are racked with sin. We sin in our thoughts, in our desires, in the things that we do, in the things that we feel. We have never really kept a single commandment of God. And so our Lord Jesus had to atone for the guilt, the sin, the corruption that lies within us. He was the perfect sinless one, as has been prayed and confessed and sung today, who bore the curse of death and hell for wretches like you and me. And because He did that, because He took the penalty that we deserve because we have broken God's law, we by faith in Him are forgiven. That is scandalous to say. You are forgiven. Consider your track record. But not only do we need to be without sin if we're going to dwell with God, positively we must have righteousness. God has revealed what He requires in His holy law. And if anyone is going to dwell with Him, we must keep that law perfectly. We must not break it in any way, but we must fulfill it. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came. As Stephen was praying earlier about Him standing in the desert, facing the temptation of Satan, we realize that what's going on there 
is that Adam was tempted in a paradise, having everything going for him and fell. And Jesus was tempted in a wasteland with everything stacked against him and he succeeded. Fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law in the place of all of God's people so that by faith in Christ, apart from what we do, we might be counted with the very righteousness of Christ. We receive, brothers and sisters, what Jesus has done and thereby have eternal life. The Father has planned this and He delights in it. Jesus Himself says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now, I know that we are in Ephesians 4 today, and you're probably quite concerned because we haven't even looked that direction yet. I want to begin our thoughts about Ephesians 4 by considering Luke chapter 15 for just a moment. Many know the parable of the prodigal son that is a piece of Luke chapter 15. It's one of the most famous parables that Christ ever told. But there are two parables that come before that one. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. The occasion for these parables and the occasion for the parable of the prodigal son is found in Luke 15, 1 and 2. It reads this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus begins to tell parables. The first parable is about a shepherd who has lost one of his sheep. He goes, he leaves the rest of the sheep and goes in search of this one sheep and finds it. He rejoices to find it, lays it on its shoulder, and comes home. When he gets home, he calls his friends together and says, let's have a party. Let's celebrate because I found the sheep that I had lost. So it will be in heaven, Luke tells us. So it will be, Jesus says, when one sinner repents. Then there's the parable of the lost coin where a woman having ten coins loses one. She turns her house inside out and upside down trying to find this coin and finds it. And upon finding it, calls her friends together and says, let's celebrate because I found my coin. So it will be, says Christ, when a sinner repents. And then what about the prodigal son? Many of you know the story. An entitled, kind of jerkish young man who demands his inheritance prematurely from his father. He goes into a far country with that money and blows everything on reckless living. He is in a detestable state and decides one day he comes to his senses and he decides he's going to go back to his father's house. But he's going to go back, not as a son, he's going to go back as a slave. He's got the pitch already. That's what he's going to say. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He makes the journey home. When he is still a long way off, the father sees him and is filled with compassion for him and runs to him, embraces him, and kisses him. Now the son is ready to go. He's, he knows what he's going to say. He starts, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interjects. 
The father practically interrupts him and says to the servants, bring the best robe in the house and put it on. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and put shoes on his feet and let's celebrate. Let's have a party because my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. So it is with us, brothers and sisters. We come to the Father so often. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm not worthy to be called your child. Let me work for you. Treat me as a hired servant, as a slave. And the Father says, none of that. No. I have a robe of righteousness for you. I have a ring of grace and shoes of mercy. You, my child, were dead and are now alive. You were lost, but are found. Enter into my joy forever. What a God. And what a gospel. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. The reason that I did what I just did is because that is how Paul has written this letter. He begins with what for three chapters? He begins with gospel. He begins with Christ. His work, His sufficiency, everything that He's done to save us. He begins with God's grace. He tells us that we were lost. That we were dead. That we were enslaved to Satan in our own passions. That we were cut off from God without hope. We were alienated from God's people. But God because of the great love with which He loved us, because He's rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The things that we're going to be considering today in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, are all implications of the Gospel. They are all implications of the Gospel. By that I mean they flow out of the Gospel. Paul is continuing to unpack for us the new life that we have in Christ. He is continuing to write of living in a way that is commensurate with the gospel. He began all of that in chapter 4 and verse 1, where he said, I therefore, in light of everything I've already written, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's continuing to unpack that for us. Under the banner of Christ and the gospel, there are ways we are to live. And we're going to be considering aspects of that today. And as we've been rejoicing over, especially in the last several weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, none of these things that the Lord tells us about our new life in Christ and how we are to live, not a single one of them is burdensome. Because we have been set free from the condemnation of the law. Christ has seen to that. And because we are not who we used to be. We have a new Nature now, we have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been born again by the Spirit of the living God and now have become obedient from the heart. We want to obey. We delight in God's law in our inner man because of what God has done. And so His commands are not burdensome. With all of that in view, let's consider our passage for today. Listen now as I read God's Word beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. The plan for today is we're going to consider five things that characterize our new life in Christ. Five things that characterize our new life in Christ. We are not who we used to be. In Christ, we have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We see that in verse 24. And so we, number one, speak the truth with one another. Number one, we speak the truth with one another. Let's look at verse 25 together. Rather than speaking falsehood, which would have characterized the old man and the old life, we now speak the truth. This means a number of things, certainly. It means that we're not lying to each other. It means that we're not deceiving each other. It means that we speak the truth to one another because we are members one of another. That's what Paul says. Speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members one of another. This sounds just like what he had written a number of verses before. Put your eyes on verse 15 of chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We speak the truth with one another because we are members one of another. This is Christ's design for his people. We speak the truth in love. As we considered a few weeks ago, we do not hijack the truth for our own purposes. We speak it lovingly for the good of others. Speaking the truth in love with one another is an integral part of how we grow in Christ. When it comes to growing in the faith, when it comes to maturation and being conformed into the image of Christ, Paul has been crystal clear that we need each other if that's going to happen. This is how Christ has designed His church. Speaking the truth, as we continue to think about that, certainly entails saying things that are true with respect to God's Word. It means going more deeply into sound doctrine. It means deepening our understanding together of Christ and the Gospel. So much of growth in terms of our understanding in the Christian faith is not so much learning things new, but it's going deeper into the things that we have been told. It's going deeper into the things that we already know in part, but can know much more deeply. We are going more deeply into Christ and what He has accomplished for us. Speaking the truth to one another entails dealing honestly with one another. And it certainly entails talking honestly about our lives according to God's Word. Now God works in His grace to keep us from sin, does He not? 
He works by his grace to keep us from foolishness. And one of the primary ways that he does that is to use us. He uses our brothers and sisters. When it comes to not living like we used to live, we need each other. We need our friends in the church to encourage us. We need our brothers and sisters in the church to exhort us toward godliness and to remind us that it's worth it and that it's good. We need our friends to be able to look at us and tell us when we're being foolish or selfish or hard-hearted or naive. We need to be able to have those kinds of conversations. And we need to be able to receive that kind of exhortation and correction. Now, obviously, that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Am I right? Real talk. Like, none of us, not a single person in this room hearing the sound of my voice right now enjoys being corrected. None of us like to be told that something we want to do or something we want to pursue is wrong. We don't like to be told that something that we want really badly is not good for us. That's because we're all proud on the one hand. We are convinced that we're right. And if everybody else would be enlightened, they would see that we're right too. But that's also because we're selfish. We want what we want. And we feel entitled to it. We should have it. If we're honest deep down too, in our flesh, we think that our fulfillment and our happiness is the goal. We think that our agenda is the priority. Now, we would never talk in public like that. Or at least rarely would we. But it is the posture of our flesh. And so when anyone gets in the way of us having what we want, we get angry. If anyone speaks against something that we want and are convinced that we're entitled to have, we lash out. And so it's quite clear, friends, that if we are going to speak the truth to one another in such a way that would be good for us, if we're going to be able to have those kinds of honest dialogues and interchanges, we will need much grace. May God give us that grace that we might live honestly together, that we might give and receive encouragement, and that we might give and receive correction. Now, having these kinds of honest relationships, speaking the truth with one another, being members one of another, having those kinds of relationships is not just for our own personal benefit, though, of course, we do benefit. But the point in every letter of the New Testament when exhortations are given. Yes, it's for your personal good, but the point is that it's for our good. It is for the good of the body of Christ that we live together this way. We all together profit from living honestly. We all together profit from speaking the truth with one another. We are not who we used to be. We have a new life in Christ. And so we now, number two, don't allow anger to fester and do harm. Number one was we speak the truth with one another. Number two, do not allow anger to fester and do harm. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. So rather than being destructively angry, that's what we once were, that's characteristic of the old man and the old life, we are now something different. Paul's first exhortation in these verses 
you can see there is be angry and do not sin. That is a reference to Psalm 4. So clearly in Paul's mind, there is a way that we can be angry and not be in sin. But how is it that we sin in our anger? Let's think about that for a moment. How do we sin in our anger? Well, we sin in our anger when we get angry over little things or over nothing at all, frankly. It's wrong. We sin when we get angrier than we should, even if it's over something justifiable. And then we are carried away in our passion to a very unhealthy and sinful place. Or this is big. We sin in our anger most often when our anger is misdirected. Instead of being angry against sins, we're angry with people. Instead of being angry with the fallout of original sin, we get angry with our brothers and sisters. We direct our anger at others when oftentimes it ought to be directed at our own sinfulness. And instead of being angry over things that dishonor God and hurt other people, we are angry over things that really only have to do with our desires or our concerns. Paul's second exhortation, after he says, be angry and do not sin, is do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is given because it is inevitable that we all will get inappropriately angry. We do. Even so, says Paul, don't let your anger be long-lived. Do not let it fester. Reconcile it. Get beyond it. Don't just wallow in it, which we are all prone to do. And then he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I don't know, I'm tempted to be kind of punchy and joke about how we've, many of us have heard this text talked about. You know, don't give the devil a foothold now. You know, that kind of stuff. We have heard that exposited and explained in Lord knows how many ways, right? Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. But look at the context of this exhortation. It is written in a corporate way about our anger within the body of Christ. It's written in a corporate way about our anger within the body of Christ. This is about reconciliation and forgiveness in the body of Christ. By allowing anger to fester, it grows stronger. And, friends, when we do that, when we allow anger to fester and it grows stronger, that quite literally is the devil's playground. He seeks, after all, to divide the church. He seeks to destroy the unity of the church that is ours in Christ. He seeks, does Satan, to tear the saints apart. By being vigilant regarding our anger, we fight against the evil one. By reconciling offenses and seeking forgiveness and not allowing anger to just fester and tear us to pieces, we fight against the devil. We seek in the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are not who we used to be. We have a new life in Christ. And so, number three, we no longer steal, but work honestly so that we can be generous. Number three, we no longer steal, 
but work honestly so that we can be generous. Let's look at verse 28 together. Rather than stealing and deceiving others, something that would have characterized the old man and the old life, we now work honestly and provide for other people. It's wrong, certainly, to steal. I mean, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. We know that it is one of the Ten Commandments and God's moral law that we should not steal and take what is not ours. It's also wrong in this same spirit to deceive and manipulate. At the heart of theft, at the heart of deceit and manipulation is selfishness. And we should not be concerned just for ourselves. Paul says, don't steal anymore, but rather work. Work honestly. It's good to work honestly with our own hands. And this is good because in doing so, Paul says, the person who used to steal and whose life used to be characterized by selfishness, this person who now works honestly has things to give to other people who need it. Now, it's not wrong to have things for ourselves and for our families. It's not wrong to have even nice things. The point of the Scripture is that we do not work just to accumulate stuff for ourselves. We work in large part so that we can be generous toward other people. We are able to freely give to others what the Lord has given to us. This is just another facet of the outwardly oriented nature of the Christian life. We talk about that a lot. How the Christian life is always outwardly oriented. Everything that we tend to hear in our modern church context kind of points us back inside ourselves. But everything in the Scripture points us out. Everything in the Scripture points us out, first of all, to look to Christ always as the ground of our hope and confidence. Points us out to look to Christ always to save what's wrong in us. Amen. And the Scripture always points us out to love God and neighbor. So basically, we go from being completely concerned for ourselves, always looking in, always thinking about me, stealing, deceiving, manipulating, those kinds of things. We go from that to being concerned genuinely for our neighbor, concerned genuinely for the good of our brothers and our sisters. And that concern for neighbor, Paul says, is a primary reason that we work honestly with our hands so that we have things to share. We are not who we used to be. We have a new life in Christ. And so, number four, we speak in ways that build up and give grace. Number four, we speak in ways that build up and give grace. Let's look at verses 29 and 30, where Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Rather than speaking in evil and destructive ways, that's what characterizes the old life and the old man, we now speak in ways that build up and give grace. Now that word that's rendered in verse 29, corrupting in the version that we're looking at, that word means bad or evil in a moral sense, to the point of doing harm. 
Paul is going to spill some ink. I just want us to be clear on what Paul is writing to here. He's going to spill some ink in chapter 5 and verse 4 about crass and crude talk. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's writing about in this case. In this case, he's writing about evil, harmful speech. Speech that hurts other people. He's talking about speech that tears other people down. Speech that is unkind or even malicious in its intent. And Paul is saying we ought not talk in those ways with one another. And then he connects that, verse 30. It's connected by a conjunction. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 30. The grieving of the Holy Spirit is connected to what has come before it. It's not just a broad kind of sweeping statement, right? Like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit in some ethereal way. It's specific. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in the way you speak with one another. So this is important that we would understand this in the context of Ephesians 4. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because I, I trust many of you, like me, have heard a number of things said about that phrase too. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, just in some general sense. Like, oh my gosh, like am I walking around all the time grieving the Holy Spirit? The context is specific. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we, with our words, tear one another to pieces. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we use words and we act in such a way that we bite and devour one another, as Paul says in Galatians 5. How so? How is it that the Holy Spirit would be grieved when we tear each other up with our speech? Well, he's grieved because he is the one who has established unity in the church. In the Spirit, we have all together been united to Christ. In the Spirit, we have all together been sealed for the day of redemption. Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians 4, I urge you to walk, beginning in verse 2 here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When we tear others down with our words, when we speak in unkind ways to each other, when we seek to hurt other people in what we say to them, we are assaulting the unity and the peace that the Holy Spirit Himself has established in Christ's church. So I'm going to make an assumption about me and all of you. I assume that we all want to honor God with our lives. Amen? We do. Oftentimes when the conversation occurs about glorifying the Lord or you hear language used about glorifying God, it often sounds very vague. Just the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. We want to glorify God. It's ethereal. It's kind of out there somewhere, but I'm not quite sure how to do it. Well, the Scriptures aren't like that. The Scriptures are very clear. They give us handles. It's very practical in terms of how we would honor God with our lives. So do you want to honor God with your life? If you do, 
then look around. Look around at these people. Consider them and how you speak to them. Aim to do these people good. Aim to say things that are true to these people. Say things that would build these people up. And say things that would give grace when these people hear you say them. Now a brief note of clarification. Speaking in a way that gives grace does not mean that we're just nice all the time. Right? Many have joked how like the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. You know? It doesn't mean that we're just nice all the time to speak in a way that gives grace. It's a common confusion. And I would say that being nice all the time as we often define it actually leads to a lot of confusion and harm. It leads to a lot of falsehood as well. Speaking in a way that gives grace means that when we say hard things, which we will have to, that we say them in a way that will result in the benefit of the hearer, and we say them in a way that will result in the building up of the person hearing my words. This would certainly involve speaking the truth in a loving way and not hijacking it for my own ends. We are not who we used to be. We have a new life in Christ. And so we, number five, love and forgive one another. Number five, we love and forgive one another. Let's look at verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, Paul says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Put away all that stuff. That's who you used to be. That characterized the old life and the old man. Now, you have put on the new man in Christ Jesus. You have a new identity in Him. And so, be kind to one another. I am always astonished, in a good way, by the simplicity of God's Word. It is not complicated. Now in Christ, you used to live a life amongst other people characterized by malice and wrath and anger and slander and all these terrible things. Now in Christ, be kind to each other. Tenderhearted, meaning gentle and compassionate. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul grounds our forgiving each other in the fact that God has forgiven us in Christ. And that kind of language is not unique to Paul. The Lord Jesus spoke this way as well. Many may be familiar with the parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew chapter 18. If you're not familiar with the parable, don't worry about that. I'm going to recount it briefly for us. In that parable, Jesus tells of a a kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. Of another kingdom in which a king wishes to settle accounts with all of his servants. And when he begins to do this, there's a servant that's brought to the king who has an enormous debt. This debt, Jesus says, is 10,000 talents. In modern day terms, that's hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. A massive amount. And since he could not pay the debt, no kidding, 
His master orders him to be sold along with his wife and his children and everything that he has in order that payment might be made. So the servant pleads for mercy. He falls before the king. Have patience with me, he pleads, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master, the king of that servant, released him and forgave him that huge debt. Now, that same man who has just been forgiven the equivalent of hundreds of millions or more dollars, who just moments ago was going to be sold along with his whole family and everything he had, who was just forgiven that debt, is gone free, he goes out and finds one of the other servants, one of his peers, who owes him, by comparison, a small amount, a hundred denarii, which would be 20 or 30 grand. And that servant seizes his fellow servant and begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. And so this other servant falls to his knees and pleads for mercy too. Have mercy on me. Be patient with me and I will pay you. But the servant who had been forgiven, who was owed money by the other servant, refused to be patient, refused to have mercy, and had his other servant, his friend, his peer, put in prison until the debt could be paid. And we read, Jesus says, when all the other servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And we're like, you better believe they should. We read that and we hear that and are outraged rightly by that because we understand what Christ is doing. This person was forgiven a debt that is incalculable. And then he, being forgiven that debt, goes and chokes the life practically out of his friend who owes him peanuts. The unforgiving servant is a loathable person. But here's the thing. When Christ tells parables like this, He is quite literally setting the grenade on the table and pulling the pin. Because Christ's point in that is that unforgiving servant, that's you. That's you. That's me. The parable goes on. The king, the master, summons this unforgiving servant and says to him, you are a wicked servant. And because I forgave you, because you pleaded with me, you should have forgiven your fellow servant. You should have had mercy on him as I had mercy on you. And in anger, in wrath, the king delivers the wicked servant to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Christ says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How unworthy of God are we? We have been forgiven an unfathomable, unfathomable amount, excuse me. And then we so often do not forgive our neighbors of minor offenses. That alone, how slow we are to forgive each other, that alone is more than enough to condemn us all. 
So as you hear this, the language of Paul, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. And as you hear the words of Christ about forgiveness and what he says about the reality that so my heavenly Father will do to you. He will judge you if you do not forgive your brother. What are the takeaways from that? Number one, the takeaway as always is, oh, how we need Christ. Because we don't forgive as we should. None of us have. What Jesus is saying in that parable is not forgive your brothers and sisters, your neighbor well enough and you will earn heaven. He is dumping the reality of God's requirement in all of its weight on us to make it quite clear that none of us forgive as we should. And we need Christ and His righteousness. We need His perfect record. Second takeaway, God have mercy on us because we are unforgiving, sinful people. Have mercy. Third takeaway though, aside from that, we should forgive each other. We should forgive one another when we wrong each other. How absurd is it that we wouldn't in light of what we have been forgiven? In light of the fact, like we thought about last week, that our record really is trash. We come before the Lord to present our record, our good works, and it doesn't stand. We come before the Lord to consider whether or not we've kept His commandments, whether we've broken any of them, and it becomes clear that we've broken them all and not kept any, really. We, on our own, are as guilty as it gets. And the news of the gospel is that because of something someone else has done, not because of anything you have done or could ever do, but because of something that someone else has done, we are absolved of all guilt. Because of something that someone else, namely Jesus Christ, has done, we are forgiven. Book it. You can leave here today, regardless of what you plan to do, and know that in spite of all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my corruption, all of my regrets, I am forgiven. Because of Christ. We haven't done anything. He has done everything. God, because of Christ alone, looks at a wretch like you or me and pronounces the word righteous. How astonishing is it that people with a record like ours are forgiven? How astonishing that people like us who are riddled with guilt and shame have had all of that taken away never to bear it again. How astonishing. It's astonishing enough that God would look at us and say righteous. How astonishing that in Christ Jesus at the end of history when we stand before the Lord, He will look at you and me and say well done. Well done. Enter into my joy forever. It's the greatest news in the world. And in light of it, we love each other. In light of it, 
We forgive one another eagerly as God in Christ forgave us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your forgiveness. We thank you that we have been absolved in your son. We pray that you would remind us anew this morning, even as we have heard it from your word, as we now come to your table, remind us that we are forgiven. That because of Christ, because of his perfect obedience and record, we are now counted righteous and that you will say to us, well done. Remind us of your unswerving and utter faithfulness to us. We pray that you would continue to work in us by your spirit. You tell us that you will sanctify us and make us more like your son. We ask you to do it. We pray that that would manifest itself in any number of ways in our lives together. We pray that we would speak the truth to each other. We pray that we would not tear one another to pieces with our words. We pray that we would be generous. We pray that we would love and forgive each other. Work these things in us, we ask. And we trust you to do it in Christ's name. Amen.